Before I start with this episode, I want to break with the usual format to say thank you to all of you who have supported Outlines throughout my long hiatuses. Without your continued encouragement, I know that I wouldn't be writing this, so thank you. It's very much appreciated. The pandemic has been a difficult time for everyone, and it's had a huge impact on the ways in which I can conduct my research. It's also made me realise that if I want to continue on with the show, then I need to start making it financially viable. Each episode represents at least 60 hours of solid research and writing time, and comes with a multitude of irritating fees and subscriptions. Outlines will continue to be free to listen to, and free of advertisements, But if you enjoy what I do, and you want to help out, then please click the Patreon link in the description, or go to www.patreon.com forward slash the Outlines podcast, where you can choose to financially support the show on a monthly basis, but of course with the ability to stop your payments whenever you need. At the detective inspector level, I'm offering access to one exclusive microcase per month, and early access to regular episodes. Or, if you choose to become a detective superintendent, you'll get all that, but with merchandise as well. And everything I'm saying now comes with a guarantee that, during a series, I'll release at least two episodes a month, and an exclusive microcase even during series breaks. Please consider supporting if you're able to, whether now or in the future. It will make all the difference to me. This episode of Outlines contains content which some listeners may find distressing, so, as always, discretion is advised. It's some time towards the middle of November as I begin to write this. It's been a long month, actually a long year of wanting to write, researching, planning, and then being unable to go through with it. Research is printed, sorted, and piled all over my desk in cases and categories, and somehow I can't seem to begin to make sense of any of it, especially this case. I actually did the drive back in August of 2019, and when I came to write it up, something didn't feel right. I've lost the audio from that day to a dead laptop, but there was a conversation between myself and Gemma, my sometime research assistant, We say, this doesn't seem right. Normally, when I do the drives for these episodes, visiting the scene comes with a certain sense of anonymity. We quietly stop in a town or in the middle of the countryside, and to the casual observer, there is nothing to suggest that we're doing anything out of the ordinary. In the village of Metten, it felt different. This is a small settlement in the heart of the North Norfolk countryside. With a road which runs straight through its centre, it is no more than a handful of houses and a church. The area lays untouched by new build, and so, despite the fact that the case I'm looking at occurred in April of 1969, there is really very little difference between then and now in terms of the lay of the land and there's something about this one that still feels fresh in the mind. I don't know if it's because it's more well-known than my usual, or if it's because Metten is so small and has been so exposed by coverage of this case, but it all felt somehow wrong. 
So much so that it took until only a couple of months ago for me to start to understand how to approach it. In September of 2021, I took a walk one afternoon in early autumn under a warm sun and leaves which had just begun to turn yellow. I was relatively new to the area I was walking in, and before I knew it, I was lost. I lived on a housing estate on the edge of a heath, and as I walked, I came to a kid's play area on a dusty track at the edge of fields and woodland. In the distance, I could hear the sounds of kids from the nearby school playground, and as I followed the path, discarded by the side of the track in long grass was a child's scooter. It was in perfect condition, but all the kids were at school, and there was no one else around. It had just been left there and somehow forgotten. As I looked at the scooter, my mind was drawn to the work I was trying to do for this episode, and then to Metten, to Tuesday, April the 8th, 1969, and to a man called David Empson. It was around half three in the afternoon, and 34-year-old David, a worker at Norfolk Textured Yarns, was on the way back from the coastal town of Cromer, inland to his home in the village of Sustard. He and his son Douglas had taken David's mother to Cromer Hospital for a specialist appointment, and as they were returning along the small country lane between the villages of Roughton and Metton, they spied something strange. In the field next to the road lay a blue and white bicycle. David would later tell reporters, It was about five feet into the field. If it had been on the bank, then I wouldn't have taken any notice of it. David and his family loaded the bike into the boot of his car and took it to PC Derek Chiddock at the police house in Roughton. Initially classed as lost property, it would be the next morning before the bicycle would be linked to a missing person, a 13-year-old schoolgirl from Metton called April Fab. A few weeks after April's disappearance, David would be interviewed again. He was putting in onion sets in his garden at Chapel Cottages in Sustard, flanked by his children, Douglas and Darnell. With a remarkable lack of self-awareness or empathy, he'd tell the reporter, I wish I'd never seen the cycle. This has put years on me. In 2019, 50 years after the disappearance of April Fab, Gemma and I pulled up next to the entrance to St Andrew's Church in Metton. We feel uncomfortable and a little exposed in this tiny village which has lived for so long in the shadow of April's disappearance. Opposite the church, and overlooking the entrance, stands a red-bricked house. This is number three council houses, and was the home of April Fab. From the windows, I'd imagine that you can see the entrance to the church, and just to one side of that entrance, a gravestone. On that stone, the inscription reads, April Fab, a child who disappeared from this parish in April of 1969, of whom nothing has since been heard. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast.
April, the youngest daughter of Ernest and Olive Fab, was born on the 22nd of April 1955. Ernest worked as a labourer at H. Bullen and Son, a joinery in Cromer, and April attended school at Cromer Secondary Modern. She had shortish, light brown hair and blue eyes, and was, by all accounts, just a normal teenage girl. She owned a cairn terrier called Trudy, and was a happy girl, though she had a sensitive nature and was even a little afraid of the dark. On her bedroom wall was a poster of the pop star Andy Fairweather Lowe, who in the mid to late 60s came to fame as part of the Welsh pop band Amen Corner, reportedly her favourite band. She didn't have a boyfriend, but did have plenty of friends and was well-liked around her small village. On the afternoon of Tuesday, April 8th, 1969, at around 1.40pm, April, whose 14th birthday would be in two weeks' time, left home on her blue and white bicycle, intending to visit her sister Pamela and brother-in-law Bernard. Pamela and Bernard lived with their ten-month-old son, Duncan, in a bungalow called Mola House, which was a new-build home on Cromer Road in Roughton, a couple of miles away from Metton. When she left for Pamela's, April was not wearing a coat, but did have on a moss-green jersey with a yellow and white band around the neck and each cuff. This was paired with wine-coloured collots which she had made herself, and red wooden-soled sandals over white knee-length socks. In her hair, she wore a brown ribbon. In the bike's saddlebag were cigarettes and a handkerchief, which had been intended as presents for Bernard, as well as coins totalling five and a half pence. Today, the road which April cycled from Metton to Roughton is much the same as it would have been then. It's a small, single-track country lane surrounded by fields and the occasional farmhouse. When I visited with Gemma, I was struck by just what a small community it is. Sometimes, when you look at a place on Google Maps, even using Street View, it doesn't give a proper sense of the scale of a village. Metton is tiny. As April left her parents at number three council houses, she headed along the Roughton Road, where she spied two children, one of whom was ten-year-old Christine Dixon, who was riding a donkey in a field beside the road. Stopping to chat to the two, she spent roughly ten minutes with the friends before continuing her journey in the direction of Roughton. At just after 2pm, 20 minutes after April left her parents' house, she was spotted for the last time by an employee from nearby Harrison's farm as she cycled down Roughton Road. A few hundred yards on from this last sighting, at 2.15pm, two ordnance survey workers in a van would come forward to say that they had spotted April's bicycle lying in the field where David Empson would later pick it up. Between sometime around 2pm and 2.15, within a stretch of road no longer than a few hundred yards, 13-year-old April Fab had vanished. All that remained was her blue and white bike, the cigarettes, handkerchief and pennies, all still tucked away safely in the saddlebag. Of course, it would be a while before her parents began to realise that there was anything amiss. 
Neither April's family nor her sister Pamela and husband Bernard owned a telephone. Pamela did not know that April had planned on visiting. And so it wasn't until it began to get dark that Ernest and Olive, Fab, began to worry. Her father would later say, We knew she would get here before dark as she had no lights on her bike and her sister would have sent her home. Anecdotally, it was said that a few days before her disappearance, she had intended to go and visit her school friend Susan, but had drawn back from the door and come into the living room again because it was dark outside. As the light faded, Olive Fab made her way to Pamela's bungalow, but it was soon established that April was not there. Frantic with worry, the couple used a neighbour's phone to call local hospitals, but that was to no avail. It was around 10.30 that evening when Olive had finally exhausted all the relatives and friends that she thought April might possibly have decided to call in on. And it was then that the police were called. That evening, led by Detective Inspector Blake, police on the ground scoured the hedgerows and countryside on foot and with the help of tracker dogs. Even that early on, a helicopter from nearby RAF Cottishall was brought in to help with the search. At that stage, they had no idea where exactly to begin looking, and it would not be until the next morning that someone realised the significance of the bike which David Empson had handed in to the police house. Speaking about the search... Detective Superintendent Reginald Lester of the Norfolk County Police Force, the man who was leading the inquiry, would say, It was very awkward country, as there was plenty of cover in scattered woodland. In the following days, the scale of the search for April Fab increased. A specialist intelligence headquarters was established at Cromer Police Station to help sift through information coming in from members of the public who were also turning up on foot to offer their help. Over 200 police officers and scores of civilian volunteers searched the hedgerows, fields and woods which surrounded Metton. This is a village that in 1969 reportedly boasted a population somewhere in the region of 54 people. The idea that one of them, a teenage girl, could go missing in such a way was unthinkable. April's parents were interviewed in the days following her disappearance. Next to Olive sat a vase of pale yellow spring flowers that April had picked a few days previous. Ernest told the journalist, She was a very good living girl and quite happy at home. There was no reason whatever for her to have gone. Her sister Diane, who still lived at home, said that it would have been out of character for April to have run away. She was just a normal teenager. Just in case she had left voluntarily, though, her family clearly told the paper, We want her to know that she can come back here, and not a word will be said against her. With Olive adding, We are hoping and praying that she comes back safely to us. As the police investigation continued throughout the week, it began to transpire that there was no more than a ten-minute window in between the last sighting of April by the Ordnance Survey workers on Roughton Road and the first time her bicycle was seen in the field a few hundred yards further on. When police inspected the bike, they found that it was undamaged, 
and that the field in which it lay showed no signs that the ground had been disturbed. Somewhere in that ten-minute window, something had made April abandon her bike, which was then left at least five feet into the field at the other side of a built-up bank. It was theorised that she wouldn't have had the strength to throw the bike into that field herself, but without any eyewitnesses, it was impossible to know what could have occurred that afternoon, and if she left voluntarily, or against her will, on foot or in a vehicle. There were several interesting sightings of cars and vans reported in the area around the time April was cycling down the road. The first of these was a dark-coloured and battered van with two young men in, which was seen driving at high speed through Metton, reportedly minutes after April had left home. It was later seen driving very fast through Calthorpe, which is about six miles away. It's a little muddled, so I don't know if the timings in one report are wrong, or if this second van is actually the same but police also announced that they were interested in tracing a dark-coloured Morris 1000 van, which was seen heading through Metton towards Sustard at about 2.45. It had no handle on the rear door and a circular transfer on the rear near-side window. Another van, a dark blue or black Ford Transit carrying three men who were selling carpets, was also seen at 1.30pm, outside a fish and chip shop in Roughton. There were also a couple of stationary cars spotted in the area between 2 and 3pm. One of those was on a rough track apparently known locally as Tom's Tot, which ran from between Roughton and Metton. The car was described as being similar to a Ford Anglia or Escort Estate, with a chrome strip or a cream flash along the side. It had its boot open and inside the car was a man and a woman. The other was cream or pale brown, and similar in style to a Ford Consul or Vauxhall Cresta. The driver's door was open, and a man was seen sitting in the driver's seat, with his foot dangling out of the door. The ordnance survey workers who spotted April's bike were the same ones who saw this car, and so we know that the sighting occurred at roughly the same time that she disappeared, For a while after April vanished, the tips came in thick and fast. A woman named Stephanie Chapman, who lived on nearby Felbrigg Road, told police that she had heard a scream outside her house on the Tuesday night. She said, I didn't think anything about it until this morning, when I heard that a girl was missing. At about half past eleven or quarter to twelve, I heard a shriek. I didn't hear anything more after that and I didn't hear a vehicle or anything else. As frogmen searched the lake at Felbrigg Hall, another lead came in. A bloody handkerchief, embroidered with the letter A, had been found at Great Wood in Felbrigg. Police dogs were rushed to the scene, but it would later transpire that the handkerchief belonged to a woman who had used it to wipe her son's leg after he had fallen and cut himself. As well as appealing for eyewitnesses in the immediate area, police also placed posters of April at the train stations in Cromer, North Walsham and Norwich. There's one particular photograph of this. I found it while browsing the newspapers available on microfilm. It's taken at what appears to be night time and is lit from the left-hand side. In the black and white picture... 
two policemen, one in uniform and one in a suit, affixing a large well-lit poster of April to a wall. The poster is probably half the size of the officer in the suit and looks like it might be a school photo. Just April's head and shoulders blown up to huge proportions. The lighting in the photograph brings April into the forefront and her eyes look out quietly, a half-smile on her lips. Underneath, in the right-hand corner, is a box in which, printed in block capitals, it reads simply, Have you seen this girl? I don't know if it's the lighting or the fact that April's face is blown up to such large proportions, but the image reminds me of a shot I'd see in a photography exhibition, and there's something arresting about it. Nowadays, we have social media to help us look for missing people. With a click, you can share a face all around the world. But then, in 1969, there were these posters in train and coach stations up and down the country. April's face stared out at commuters and travellers. And while they waited, they must have looked at the poster and stood and wondered, have I seen this girl? Where might she have gone? Detective Superintendent Reginald Lester told a press conference that, presumably off the back of this poster campaign, someone had come forward to say that they'd seen a girl matching April's description at about 6.15 on the Tuesday evening at North Walsham Railway Station. That's around eight miles away from Metton. The girl was apparently keeping out of the way. This sighting contradicted that of the driver and guard of the 348 train from Cromer that afternoon, who thought he had seen a girl like April on the train. Police also got word of a girl on a coach which left Norwich at about 10.15am on Wednesday the 9th of April and arrived at London, Victoria at 3.15 in the afternoon. The girl stood out because she had been short a shilling of the 10 shilling fare. There are no reports to say that either this girl or the one on the train or the one lurking at the station were ever traced. And if any of these girls were April, you have to ask yourself, how did she get on foot to North Walsham train station in time to catch the 348? Or without being seen along the route to be there for 6.15? Or to Norwich by the morning to board a London-bound coach? And where would she have found the nine shillings coach fare? when all her money was in the bike's saddlebag. One more sighting, which is unfortunately sparse on information, places her outside a newsagent in Blackwater, Hampshire, 180 miles away from Metton. Again, this has never been confirmed. The police were anxious to exhaust every possible line of inquiry, and so they also spent some time visiting Cromer Secondary Modern, where April had been a pupil. They gathered all of the school's 370 students for an assembly, and asked them for any help they could give, either with April's whereabouts, or in identifying the girl seen in North Walsham at 6.15. As well as this, nine of April's school friends, the police and some of the Secondary Modern staff, were gathered together for a collective interview. Police also received a special viewing of an 8mm colour film made by C.C. Lond, the school's deputy headmaster. The movie was shot over a four-day residential course at Howe Hill in Ludham the previous year, 
and was intended to give a better impression of April than could be seen in photographs. It's one of those tropes of crime cinema, the 8mm film of a missing girl smiling and enjoying herself, unaware of what is to come. There's something which feels quite poignant in the idea that this happened in April's case. I've tried to track down a copy of this recording, but it's not accessible in any of the usual places, and has probably never been digitised, if it still exists at all. The trouble with a case like this is that there is very little to go on. You have a maximum ten-minute window in which April was cycling down the road to Roughton, and then she wasn't. The only physical evidence that remained was her bicycle, which had been discarded in the field and still contained the only possessions she'd taken with her that day. None of the sightings of cars or vans or girls who looked like April ever led to anything, and so what you're left with is space ripe for speculations and theories. The most pervasive and potentially damaging of these theories is that April was an early victim of the Scottish paedophile and serial killer Robert Black. I think it's important to state very clearly that Robert Black was ruled out of police's inquiries into April's disappearance back in 2011, and the head of the Norfolk and Suffolk Cold Case Division has very publicly stated that he believes that whatever happened to April has its roots much closer to home. But the theories persist and continue to invade the narrative of what happened that day. And so I am going to include some of them here. For those of you who aren't aware of Robert Black, but want to understand where he fits into the timeline, he was convicted in 1994 of the kidnap, rape and murder of three young girls, with a fourth murder charge added in 2011. All four of his murders were committed between 1981 and 1986. As well as this, he had already previously been sentenced to life imprisonment in 1990 for the abduction and sexual assault of a six-year-old girl. He was spotted as he abducted the girl from outside her home by a neighbour, who, realising what he was witnessing, noted the registration number of Black's van and alerted the girl's mother, who immediately called the police. When the van was apprehended, not long after the abduction occurred, the girl was discovered inside a sleeping bag. She had been bound and gagged with a plaster. A hood had been tied over her head. While this case alone resulted in life imprisonment for Black, it began to become clear that this was not the 43-year-old's first crime. The first of his known murders, which is the one not prosecuted until 2011, was committed against nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi, who was abducted, sexually assaulted and murdered on the 12th of August 1981 as she cycled to a friend's house in Ballanderry, County Antrim. Her bike was found less than a mile from her home, covered in branches and leaves. Six days later, Jennifer's body was discovered in a reservoir, 16 miles away from her home. She had been sexually abused and died of drowning probably accompanied by strangulation by ligature. The second girl was Susan Maxwell, who was 11 years old and lived in Cornhill-on-Tweed, which is on the English side of the border with Scotland. She was abducted on the 30th of July 1982 as she walked home alone from playing tennis. On the 12th of August, a year to the day after the murder of Jennifer Cardi, 
Susan's body was found in a copse by the side of the A518 road near Utoxeter, 265 miles away from where she had been abducted. His next known victim was five-year-old Caroline Hogg, who went missing on the evening of the 8th of July 1983 while she played outside her home in Portobello, a suburb of Edinburgh. On the 18th of July, Caroline's naked body was found in a ditch close to the M1 motorway at Twycross, which is 310 miles away from where she had been abducted. And finally, on the 26th of March 1986... Ten-year-old Sarah Jane Harper disappeared from the Leeds suburb of Morley. She had left home to buy a loaf of bread from a corner shop a hundred yards away. She bought the bread and two packets of crisps at around 7.55pm and then left to walk down the alley which led to her home. Three and a half weeks later, Sarah's body was found partially dressed and floating in the River Trent near Nottingham, 71 miles away from where she was abducted. In the mid-1970s, Black began working for a Hoxton-based company as a van driver, and he would deliver posters up and down the UK and even into Europe. It was this work which enabled him to abduct, assault and kill children up and down the country. While the 1981 murder of Jennifer Cardi is the earliest for which he has been convicted, it is thought to be an almost certainty that she was not his first victim. As early as 1963, when Black was just 16 years old, he came across a seven-year-old girl playing alone in a park one evening in summer. He lured the child to a deserted air raid shelter, and there he held her by the throat until she lost consciousness, before masturbating over her body. The following day, he was arrested and charged with lewd and libidinous behaviour, but following a psychiatric exam, he was only admonished for the offence. This pattern of abuse towards children continued through the 1960s with Black, in 1966, being discovered to have repeatedly molested his landlord's nine-year-old granddaughter, and a year later, the daughter of his new landlords. For this, he was sentenced to a year in a borstal which specialised in the rehabilitation of serious, youthful offenders. Following his release from the Borstal, he moved to London, where he lived in a bedsit near King's Cross Station. Between the years of 1968 and 1970, he worked a series of odd jobs and began to collect child pornography, first the magazine and print variety, and later videos. He added to these with photographs taken covertly at public locations. It is within this time period that some allege that he abducted and murdered April Fab, despite the fact that Black, who was living near King's Cross at the time, did not have a driver's licence. It is said that he may have owned a pale green Ford console Zephyr, and that the car could have been the one seen on Tom Tot's lane heading in the direction of Felbrigg. The claim doesn't seem to be substantiated by any proof other than hearsay, and a belief that the disappearance bears similarities to that of Jennifer Cardi, the first of Black's known murder victims, and of Jeanette Tate, a 13-year-old schoolgirl who went missing in August of 1978 while delivering newspapers on her bike in the village of Aylesbury near Exeter in Devon. While Jeanette was never found, 
Her disappearance has long been linked to Black, with police and her family convinced of his guilt. Unfortunately, he died in 2016, before he could be charged in Jeanette's case. At first glance, there do appear to be similarities between what happened to the girls, except that April's disappearance occurred nine years before Jeanette's, and before Black obtained his driver's licence. Unlike the rest of the crimes he committed, which were opportunistic but facilitated by his job, he had no reason to be anywhere near Metton or Norfolk in general at the time April went missing. It has been very publicly stated by the man in charge of the cold case review team that he doesn't believe her death had anything to do with Black, and yet still the idea of his guilt persists. The problem is that it's convenient to say that it must have been him. Black was a high-profile serial killer and paedophile, and linking crimes to him creates a lot of press coverage. Unfortunately, it also hinders the investigation and public interest if they believe a case to be solved, because they've heard a convicted killer was probably guilty of the crime. It is certainly likely that April Fab was abducted, Her bike had been thrown, not dragged, into the field. There were reportedly no marks on the bike or the road to indicate a traffic accident. And the fact that she had left the house carrying so little, had no known boyfriend and seemed so content in her home life, makes it difficult to imagine a scenario in which she had willingly run away. Having said that, no one actually knows. There are no answers, just a bike in a field and a missing 13-year-old. For the Fab family, especially her parents Ernest and Olive, April's disappearance was something that they would never be able to move beyond. In the immediate aftermath, Olive had to take sedatives to help her sleep, and the couple left their porch light on all through the night, and the door unlocked, hoping that their daughter would return. As the days turned to weeks and slowly to years, the story of April's disappearance became consigned to anniversaries and the occasional byline in the wake of another tragedy. In 1989, 20 years after April's disappearance, the Fabs spoke to the newspapers. Olive said, Until they find her body, I cling to the hope that she is alive. I have to do that to keep myself going. I think somebody took her and is probably keeping her. Three years prior to that interview, in 1986, the couple had spoken to journalists and Ernest said, It's bad enough when they find these children murdered, but in our case, we don't even know that. Olive added, I think I would have been in an asylum now if I had given up hope. In 1989, the couple lived in a house in Cromer. Despite having moved there three years prior, they still kept a bedroom ready in case April returned. Olive said, Her doll is still on the bed and her brush and comb are still on her dressing table. I still have her school satchel too. I won't be turned away from my belief that she will come home. Time has healed us a little, but she is still on our minds every single day. Ernest Fab who had never believed that April went somewhere of her own free will, said in the same article, I don't think she could still be alive. I have come to the conclusion that if she was not abducted, she would have come home on the day she went out, on that cycle ride. Detective Superintendent Reginald Lester, the man who first led the investigation, 
died in 2017. He was 92 years old and wished until the day he died that he could have solved the case for April's parents. Ernest Fab died in 1998, Olive in 2013. In 1993, Reginald Lester gave an interview to mark the 25th anniversary of April's disappearance. He said, It's one of the disappointments of my career that I retired without resolving the mystery of what happened to this lovely couple's daughter. April is not the only victim of this sad story. Nearly 25 years later, Mr and Mrs Fab are still victims too. As with all unsolved cases, the file on April's disappearance remains open. There has been a book published about the case, which is sadly now out of print. There are YouTube videos, podcast episodes, endless articles, and yet still she remains gone. It's been 52 years now since she vanished, seemingly without a trace, destined to become Norfolk's highest-profile missing persons case. She left behind siblings and a mother and father who never forgot her and never stopped hoping that one day they'd find answers. As the window of time to solve April's case gets ever narrower, there will still stand a stone above an empty grave near the entrance to a church at Metton, and anyone who chooses to visit can read the words, April Fab, a child who disappeared from this parish in April 1969, of whom nothing has since been heard. If you enjoyed Outlines and would like to support the show, you can do so at www.patreon.com forward slash the Outlines podcast, or by clicking the link in the description box below. My thanks to new and returning patrons, Andrew Goldsmith, Natasha Turner-Swift, Amy, Karen Watson, Gillian, and Robert DeCastro, also to Ash Hirons for their support on PayPal throughout my hiatus. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.